Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made for More podcast. It's Ali Nitschke here and today I am joined by Professor Jenny Shaw. So Professor Shaw is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Vice-President at the University of Adelaide. She previously was the Interim Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Vice-President and Executive Dean of the Faculty of Arts and she's also had many, many other roles including uh, the Pro Vice-Chancellor and Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Science and Sciences at the University of New England, Head uh, School of Arts. She's also been the inaugural Director of Arts in New England. She's worked in the Centre of Research and Innovation in the Arts and Associate Dean and Head of School at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. I had an absolute blast speaking with uh, Professor Shaw and her unique take on leadership uh, in the world of academia. Let's jump right Right on in. Welcome to the Made For More podcast. I'll be sharing my experiences along with some actionable advice to take your leadership to the next level. Introducing your host, it's me, Ali Nitschke. I'm a leadership and courageous conversations expert, a Nutella lover, a mother of four young boys, a wife and a dance floor junkie. I'm here to give you the motivation you need to level up, lead yourself, lead your team and your business. Let's go. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made For More podcast. Today, I am joined by a wonderful guest, Jenny Shaw. Welcome, Professor Shaw. How are you today? And thanks for being here. I'm really well, Ali. So it's great to be here. Wonderful. Uh, For the rest of our listeners, are you able to give a little bit of a background of where you've come from and where you're going? Well, I'll start with where I am now. So in terms of my my role, my job, I'm Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic at the University of Adelaide, but I've worked at many universities and I've lived in a number of different countries and many different cities, but my um, academic loves have always been across a number of different fields. I started off as a musician and I studied music and languages at university and law And um, I always thought I'd have to decide at some point which I wanted to do, but I've never made that choice. So so I think I've managed to find roles for me that combine the aspects of what I really enjoy. I love being in and around universities. Um, I love um, the creative and cultural aspects of our, our lives and being part of that either as a performer or as an audience member or participant in some way. Um, And what really attracted me about law in the first place was um, areas of law more around equity and um, uh, fairness uh, historically, but also how it's reflected now across a range of different different policies and measures that we have in place in our society. So um, I've had a range of different roles. I've been a lecturer in music and in law. Um, I've had um, leadership roles since the early 2000s. It's a long time ago now, starting off as um, I've been a head of school at two two universities. I've been um, an executive dean at two universities and now deputy vice chancellor here in Adelaide. Goodness me, I'm exhausted just thinking about that. 
that that is such an amazing, I guess, uh, such an amazing ba- background and such an eclectic mix of arts with law. So when you uh, when you were lecturing for both arts or music, I should say music and law, did you ever think, you know, perhaps I should combine the two, or was there synchronicities between, I guess, some of the life lessons for students or some of the philosophies that you know you could tie together that wouldn't naturally fit in together? Yeah, when I was when I was tutoring and lecturing in law, I did try and find music-related cases, which is really easy in terms of copyright, I have to say. Um, A little bit harder in terms of moral rights, but it was when I was uh, lecturing, there was the start of a a lot of a better understanding of moral rights in the arts world. So that was Mm. really interesting, particularly um, with regards to Indigenous artists. So that's one thing. But also I found I have always craved doing both and being involved in both areas and have a real genuine interest in in areas of, um, if you like, process and policy. So that's a big part of what universities do, as well as that side of educating and turning out wonderful people, whether they're going to be musicians or mathematicians or doctors or um, uh, teachers of any kind. So, So I think I've always managed to combine those passions in my roles. And if not, I've got it from outside the university. So, you know, when I was doing quite a bit more work in law than in music, I was actually then doing a whole lot of performing on the side and going to um, performances. So, so I think it's always been a, a good mix. And I really did think when I was a teenager, I would have to choose and it really hasn't ever really come up. So that's been one way in which I've just made some choices that have managed to ensure I can really in, have those things that I enjoy in my life. I think in this day and age we call that multi-passionate or you know hyphen um, hyphen career career choices and you know I my background was in the arts as well and I can certainly attest to the fact that you never really let it go do you, you always have such a deep appreciation um, for arts and I, I was you know in performing arts but you know I I love anything to do where people are being creative and flexing into that emotional connection of what the arts do do for us and do to us. Uh, you mentioned uh, one of your areas was around of a passion in law was around equity and fairness. I'm not sure if you've had a chance, had a chance to catch your breath right in the middle of admissions at the moment to see that International Women's Day have just um, announced their theme around equity for all. Um, I know this is an, an area that you think uh, think about quite frequently talk about quite frequently what what do you think is we're going to see in 2023 around equity and fairness or equity for all in Australia well um, look I think there's a real push from our federal government actually to try and make sure that education both school education and tertiary education is available to everyone no matter what their geographical location, their um, socioeconomic status. Um, uh, and I think this is something that that really is important because it's giving those opportunities to students and showing them pathways for them, especially if they don't have role models. So we have some parts of our society. Um, we have some parts, I know you and I are doing this in South Australia. There are some communities in South Australia where there's now multi-generational unemployment. Yeah. So if you've had... If you've grown up in a family where, you know, parent or parents have never worked, um, possibly grandparents have never worked, then, you know, that that idea of, of having a career, um, let alone perhaps going to university or TAFE and having a career, is, is really quite alien. So mm-hmm. part of that is, I think, you know, making sure that, that potential students understand that this is for them 
So I think that's really, really important. Um, worldwide, I think, um, you know, the, the theme for International Women's Day is huge. So, um, and Julia Gillard is a great lecturer on this. Um, you know, we know that it's going to take a few more generations before girls and women are educated in many parts of the world. And if we look at what's happened in Afghanistan, it's fairly mm. depressing. So, um, so, you know, we have a very enlightened society here. We're very, very lucky, but there are other parts of the world where girls and women really don't get much more than a basic primary school education. And again, that limits their opportunities further in life. The next stage, yeah, it's so important, isn't it? And it's su- it starts at such a such a young age, the the interest and the passion for learning and uh, you know exploring what's what's possible and what's available. And I know certainly, particularly in SA, that multi generational unemployment is something. I've, I've got a number of teacher friends that are very acutely aware of the impact that their role has as early childhood educators. Um, yeah to nurture that love of learning and, you know, be the potentially be the catalyst for breaking that cycle. So in terms of what you're seeing now with um, some of the trends, the students that are coming and uh, enrolling for this year, are you seeing a bit of a shift? You know, you've, you've worked in universities for a significant amount of time. Uh, You've worked in those leadership roles. Is there anything outside of, you know, the pipeline that's happened over the last couple of years that is a comforting, interesting, peculiar trend that you're noticing of where people are or where students are starting to put their feet? Yes, actually there is. We, we can't model it because it's so new. We don't know what the trend is. But um, we are seeing, um, look, while our international students are coming back in droves, which is wonderful, mm-hmm. um, and it's wonderful to see that Australia is really a great destination for our international students, um, our, our, our domestic students, our homegrown students, um, are not coming on to university in the numbers that we saw um, two years ago. Now, through COVID, because there was no travel and no jobs, um, yeah. no casual work, um, we had record numbers of, of um, domestic students. That's Australian and permanent resident students um, enrolled at our universities. And last year that dropped. And that was understandable and predictable because, again, students could travel, but also there was a lot of casual work available. Mm-hmm. Um, and they haven't come back this year. So this is what we're a little bit concerned about. Um, And I know they've seen the same uh, trend in the States, if we can call it a trend when it's it's a second year. So the students didn't go back at the start of their academic year, which was the end of August. So we've all got reduced numbers. And what we're hoping is while it's wonderful for our students to travel, um, and and this is the time for them to do it, and some of them, you know, had been waiting for that, of course, through extended lockdown periods and various Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And while there's plenty of work, and that's great, often this is hospitality and short-term work. It's not necessarily career-type work. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping that they do actually get through that stage of having done some travel and done some casual work and then think, okay, what about my long-term future? So so I'm hoping that those students will then start to come back to the universities. um, And it looks like that probably will happen. When we've contacted students, um, most of them have said, yes, just I want to take a year or two and go and do these other things. So that's something that's new. The other thing that we're seeing with the students who are enrolling is that they are choosing to enroll in some programs and choosing not to enroll in others. You mentioned teaching. Um, I was talking with some of my colleagues at other universities and teaching numbers are down. And um, I think there's no greater need right now than for good teachers. Um, 
But I think COVID is one of those uh, factors where, you know, teenagers saw what their teachers went through. And if we focus on the school age population, they saw how hard it was for teachers through the last few years. And I think they've thought that's not for me. Yeah. (laughs) So so we've seen a big decline in in, um, students wanting to enrol in teaching. And again, I hope that will come back, but it's a bigger, that's a bigger conversation about the value of our teachers mm. um, and the value we place on our teachers, the salaries we pay our teachers, the um, development opportunities for our teachers once they're in that workforce and ways in which we can get them to stay in there. Because we, we know that there's a very high turnover once, once teachers do go into teaching. So that is a bigger discussion. I know it's a discussion that's happening on the federal stage, but um, certainly um, it's a, an area for concern for us at the moment. My goodness, it, it, it's such a big piece, isn't it? We'll talk about that on, a, on a part two of the, of the <laughs> podcast. So you mentioned around... Um, some of the students or future students going and working and, you know, having that elusive gap year between, you know, finishing school and all of that hard work and really getting into growing up uh, career choices. There's a bit of research out now around, you know, how the idea of careers are shifting from, you know, historically you would study to be a nurse and then you would go on to have a career as a nurse, or you might study to be an accountant and go on to have a career as an accountant, or you'd study to be a lawyer and go on to um, pursue a career, a lifelong career in law. And now I wish I could remember the exact numbers, but it's something along the lines now of where historically a career might have, you know, five to six different roles. Now we're seeing a trend where it's predicted that people will have throughout their life, working lifetime, up to, you know, 20 odd different careers, jobs, different industries, different sectors, different types of work. Are you seeing, uh, I guess, a return of mature age students coming back to build out their their skill set or what's your thoughts on this trend that's happening? Well, we are. And I think, you know, that is interesting. People used to talk about, you know, the one or two jobs and it was, they might have five or six and it was 13, now it's 20. Um, and sometimes I think, well, probably we we had more, more than just the one career for a lot of people, but they just talked about their one main career. Um, <clears throat> so for example, I, when I, I actually worked as a, um, uh, for um, what's now called Resolution Institute, um, I had a little break from academia and worked in the, um, the alternative dispute resolution um, business where I was the national facilitations manager for for leader at the time, um, and um, and that's not something I would have ever thought was a career for me. It was something I did for a period of time, uh, a couple of years, and I really enjoyed it. But it was in between taking on some other roles. But um, but I think you know it gave me a whole lot of skills. Along the way, I became um, an adjudicator in the concrete construction industry. And these are things that are on my CV. And people used to say, did you make it up? Well, no, I didn't. But these were things I did on the side because at the time it was important to have some training like that. Now we emphasise those things. So now we say, put all that stuff on your CV. Um, If you've done a short course in cybersecurity, we want to know about it. Employers want to know about it. And so what employers have said to us, of course, is, yes, we know they're going to have a degree, you know, a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science or whatever it is, but it's all the other stuff that they've done that we want to know about. So it's one of the reasons why universities have um, really gone into providing a lot of work integrated learning experiences to students. Um, We have internships and placements wherever we can. They're mandatory in some programs, but voluntary in pretty much everything else and very much encouraged because it's those experiences 
that gives the, the student that little bit of extra life experience, especially if they're a school leaver. But for our mature um, students, what we're finding is they're not so necessarily coming back to study a master's degree, for instance. What they are studying are short courses and micro-credentials. And that makes perfect sense because, of course, they're the things that you can study around your, your day job, around your carer responsibilities. Um, they're the things that you can tailor a bit to fit you. And what we're thinking about at the other end is, okay, by the time they've now done five or six short courses or five or six micro-credentials, could that now count as something into a degree? Mm -hmm. So, so it's, an, it's, a, you know, it's an, a new area that universities are looking at. Um, we're doing this. We have credit-bearing micro-credentials um, in some areas, and teaching is one of those. Um, and they're designed for teachers who already have a teaching degree. They're out there in the workforce. They may not have time to enrol in a master's, but they probably have time to do some micro-credentials. And by the time they've done a few of those, that might equate to one course in a master's, then they might actually want to enrol. Yeah, I can completely get that. And time is such a critical piece for that as well, isn't it? You know, by the time you're managing managing full-time work and children and other commitments and various social activities and just general life, you want to be able to go, I want a tiny little bite-sized piece that I can commit to get done in a short period of time and not, um, you know, commit to what seems like a Mount Everest to, to climb um, yeah. when you've got so many con, uh, conflicting priorities. That's get right. in, get yeah. out, learn what you need to learn specifically for, I guess, the piece of work that you're doing or the skill that you're looking to acquire uh, without the bits and pieces that aren't necessarily relevant to what it is that you need right now. Um, so, yeah, I can completely see that. And I think, you know, our lives are busy. Everyone's lives are busy. Yeah. And so the idea of saying, well, I'm going to take two years out of my very busy life to do this particular qualification. Very few people can afford to do that. Mm. Um, whereas if you can say, well, actually, if I found a few hours in the evenings each week, I could get this one done in six to eight weeks. That is much more practical for people. It doesn't mean they have to give up the source of income yeah, they can work it around everything else that they need to do in their lives without disrupt, disrupting their current life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we're seeing, I'm certainly seeing more and more of that. People are looking to get little bite-sized pieces of up, upskilling and capability that they don't need, they don't need the full smorgasbord. They just need That's a right. little piece, a little taster, a little piece of what they what they need to <laughs> satisfy. <them. laughs> The very best of smorgasbords. Uh, this has been really uh, fascinating speaking to you around, you know, how, how we think education is changing and, and what are the trends in terms of careers. You've been in leadership, I think you said, since the early 2000s. Mm. How has your leadership changed since then, do you think, since 2000? I was just thinking, my son was born in 2005 and I took on my first big leadership role in 2006. So I've always thought of my leadership roles as a real balancing act no matter what and that's professional and personal and everything else um, but um, I, I actually like taking on those leadership roles because you have the opportunity to stand back a little bit rather than being immersed in it mm -hmm. while it's great to be immersed in something it's very hard to do other than be in the moment it's very hard to see where you're going yeah. So I think in those leadership roles, whether it's been as head of school or executive dean or pro vice chancellor or all the other roles I've had, um, the ability to step back and say, okay, well, this is where the sector's going. This is where um, the school's going or the university is going. Um, and so these are the steps we need to take to get there is something I, I enjoy doing. 
And then I enjoy kind of saying, okay, well, here's how we're going to implement it. Um, yeah. And I, I learned very early on, uh, I wasn't natural at delegating. Um, now I think I'm excellent at delegating <laughs> um, because I, I learned that the only way to get these things done was to build really great teams, really yeah. great teams um, of diverse people. And I, I feel that leadership is not one person. It's the, um, the, the total leadership team. And everyone on that team brings something different, brings a strength, and the weaknesses that one person has need to be counterbalanced by strengths in another. And then you, yeah. you can actually make really great things happen. Yeah. So, so that's something I've I've definitely um, my last few roles. I, I really feel really proud of the teams I've I've built in those roles that have then outlasted me. You know, because yeah. I think you want to make it to the point where something can then just run and go, and you can walk away, and it's not going to fall over. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my most favourite sayings is, you know, the the best sign of good leadership is that you've made yourself redundant. Yeah. You've got to a point where you've built such an amazing team that are all running really smoothly. You could, you know, exit, go on holiday, go to Bali. Um, no, not really. Well, yeah, you could, I guess, but you know, go go and have a holiday, and your yeah, phone's not ringing, and there's no disaster, and fires are handled um, by your own team. Uh, interesting. When you just mentioned uh, your roles of leadership, both professional and personal. Can you touch a little bit on your personal leadership thoughts, experiences? What did you mean by that? <laughs> well, that's what I mean by that, really. I, I think it's um, it's interesting. Um, my, uh, my son will hate me for saying this, but um, I, I, I actually um, I say it quite often. Um, I have 25,000 students who listen to me and one son who doesn't, but that's absolutely <laughs> normal. Um <laughs> As you know, I know you've got kids too. It's just, um, it's just absolutely normal. But, but I do have his friends and his friends' parents who come to me for advice, and um, and I think that's a case of saying, well, it's professional. They know who I am, but they're coming to me because I'm a parent. Yeah. And, and they feel there's no boundary there in a sense that they can come to me and say, who do I go to to ask about this? Or, um, yeah. I'm really worried. My my son, my daughter wants to study this and I don't understand anything about it. I don't know, you know, it's often that fear when, when you know, a, a teenager says I want to do X or Y or, or I don't know what I want to do. Um, and then there's that fear for the parents. So that's one thing, I suppose. Um, and the other thing is, is just modelling behaviour for our kids. So, um, I mean, it was funny in a way, my son um, interviewed for something when he was in primary school, grade six, I think it was. And um, and he interviewed for a leadership role in the school and they asked him who his role models were and he, were, and he said his mum and his dad. And I thought that was really lovely. I was very touched. And they said, no, no, we need other role models. I thought, yeah, but oh. you should also have role models who are your mum and, and your parents, and of, of, you know, if you've got a parent or parents or guardian who that, that you can look up to. Um, he wouldn't say the same thing now. That's, you know, that was a long time ago. You've got to clutch on <laughs> to the, the wins, hold on to the wins, <laughs> Jenny, right. when you get them. Yeah, but I thought, you know, that's that's something. And he, look, he didn't at the time have a great idea of what I did, yeah. um, but he he knew enough that he felt that was something worth emulating in some way at that stage. I mean, yeah. now we'd run a mile, but that's that's part of growing up and, and finding your own way. <laughs> we'll come back around. Someone said to me once, because, you know, I've got four sons. Someone yep. said to me once, sons are a little bit like... Um, you're the, you're the sun and they're like a planet that kind of goes around you and they think you're amazing and then they slip behind um, and then they come back around, circle back around. So 
that's <laughs> someone very wise told me that and I'll, I'll clutch onto that. So yeah, take the wins, take the wins while, while they last. But the reason I asked, um, asked you that is I, I work with a lot of women and, you know, when you go on mat leave and when you become a parent uh, or a guardian or whatever capacity that happens to be in is I think we forget the leadership skills that are built through managing tiny people and, and large emotions and households and, and kind of that elevated, I guess, from, yeah, the elevated positioning around going, okay, I need to lead my family. Uh, and often we forget about that in the transference of leadership skills in the professional world because we don't, you know, we don't hold it in high enough regard yet. Uh, there's still time. So do you find that happening a lot with, within your own leadership teams, that there are people that perhaps are managing things in their personal lives that they aren't putting enough value on in their professional life, but really the skills are very adaptable? Uh, look, I think that's true. We, we try, I mean, uh, with my team here, I would say we do try and keep personal and pro um, professional separate, but we're aware of both. Yeah. So yeah. I'm aware that a number of people in my team have care responsibilities of mm. um, both of, of younger children and sometimes of, of older yeah. parents. Yeah. Um, and we do accommodate that. We try and have a flexible workplace. But also, I mean, just the whole last year is rather an extraordinary year, um, as you know, because we've had COVID, we've had lots of other things other than COVID. Yeah. Um, we've had people taken out for, you know, extended periods of time, either with their own illness or managing others in the family, especially yeah. people with young kids, successive weeks of illness. Um, and, and also then people feeling absolutely exhausted by the last couple of years and saying, you know what, I need a change. I need a career change. I, I know I love this job, but I need to do something else. And I've had a number of those discussions with people that I really value and really would have loved to keep in their roles who just said, you know what, it's time for me to go and put my family first for a while. Mm. Um, and uh, we saw that through the last 12 months to a greater extent than I've ever seen. Um, so that's been a real shift. I don't think it's a bad one. I, I think where people are saying, you know what, I realised that I wasn't spending enough time with my family or my extended family um, and this is what I want to do and then I'm going to come back and think about a role or a job or work of some kind after that. That's great. Um, others who said, look, you know, I need to get more of a balance in my life and I don't think that's a bad thing to realise that perhaps the balance isn't right. Um, and to try and then tip it back one way for a short period of time and see if that makes things better. Mm. So, mm. no, it's how people manage stress, really. And, and there's, it's not, you know, everyone has a different way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing that a lot as well. And I think last year, it was interesting. We're talking 2022 here, depending on when you're listening to this. But 2022, it was I guess the most stable year we've had in a long while, but also I think the most exhausted that people had been sort of the, I know certainly around November, December, people going, I can, like, I am just ready to lay flat, lay low for many, many weeks. Um, and yeah. even, you know, returning to work this year, it's been a slow and considered and mindful return to work as opposed to, oh, I've got all these goals and here we are, we're going to, you know, hit the ground running and let's do this, let's do that. It's going, mm, nope, I might just take an extra week. I might just keep going for a little bit uh, longer and just smoothly transition back into work. Yeah, no, we've seen that. And uh, the ones who've come back earlier have hit the ground running, but we've actually had a number of staff who've decided to take all of January off. And I think that's been a really good idea um, where people really needed to recharge. Um, so, you know, it's um, 
universities are always volatile places. Um, there's always change. We always have to deal with the unknown. Um, this year we have some particular unknowns at my university. We've got merger on the, the cards and mm. it's not even, but certainly that's something that we're all thinking about and um, wondering what it would look like. So that's an extra layer of complication for most of my staff who would mm. be absolutely instrumental in implementing this. So, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. So let's wrap it up. Uh, this has been amazing. And I think it's such an important topic that we continue to put in the spotlight around continual education and continually expanding our thoughts and ideas. If you could go back to the early 2000s or back to your the beginning of your leadership journey, what would be your top five tips for leaders now? So I'm just clearing my throat there. Um, top five tips for leaders. I think be authentic. Is one I have to keep tally of these. <laughs> I'll, I'll keep tally. You keep going. I think, look, authentic leadership is really important. You can't be something that you're not. Yeah. Um, you can learn. You can certainly pick up skills. So there are things that are there are gaps in my leadership. There are still big gaps in my leadership. I'm still learning. Um, and so what I'm really conscious of is um, undertaking some training, looking actively looking for development opportunities. So I'd say be authentic. The second one is. Um, fill the gaps, if you like, mm -hmm. um, so that if you need budget expertise, that's that's fairly practical, but it's often one people say, oh, I don't know how to run a budget. Yes. Okay, we'll go and get yeah. that. Um, I'm actually doing some immersive workshops this week, um, which is on a totally different area, but um, on the National Redress Scheme for right. survivors of child sexual assault. Oh, um, in institutions and this is an area even though I've been involved in facilitations before um, this is an area that's completely new to me it's new mm. legislation um, and so you know this is an area in which I absolutely need some training mm -hmm. um, and uh, again we'll have various people across all our institutions I think undergoing this training so that's that's a, an obvious gap for me that is um, something that's just come up um, the third thing I think is um, if you can build a good team around you yeah. or a good support network. And sometimes, you know, if you're in a work environment, you can build that team and it's really appropriate and sometimes absolutely essential. In my role, it's absolutely essential to have a team of people under me because yeah. the role otherwise it would not be manageable. It's not a one person job. It's a many hundreds of people job. Yeah. Um, but if you're like my sister and writing a PhD, um, that, that is a very on your own activity, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, she left teaching after many years. Again, one of those kind of burnt out with COVID and she's mm -hmm. doing, doing a PhD in education. Um, but I mean, I know she, I'm one of many people she bounces ideas off. She rings, yeah. she rings my partner. Um, she rings some of our other, um, I'm, I'm one of four. I know she, she rings my brother as well. So um, and I'm sure she's ringing friends and, and just for a chat saying, oh, could I send you a draft? You know, yep. what do you think of these ideas? So that's that's that idea of support for your ideas, but also that personal support, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. At times to say, I didn't sleep well last night and I've got to give this presentation tomorrow and what do you think I should do, you know. So, so being able to have people who won't judge you that are there to support you. And I've certainly got friends like that too that I know will just be there to listen. So... So that's, I think, another really critical thing. Um, the fourth thing is, and this is only in particular roles, I suppose, but um, but make sure someone's got your back. Um, there are times, especially in leadership roles, um, where you have to make really hard decisions 
and they're decisions that might be contentious that what yeah. universally supported or agreed and this is where I think you need to make sure that you've you've got you know you're not out there on a limb doing this as a lone ranger mm. so, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and especially I think if you're a woman it can make you even more of a target so I think it's it's really important to make sure that you have enough people on side that you can 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 put that that new idea or that decision forward and not suddenly find you're out there was no one on your side to implement it with you yes so um when I first arrived here which was almost 10 years ago um, one of my heads of school said oh you'll need to get you know you need to get about 60 percent of the staff on board to make any changes and I suspect that's about right you know you, yes. you need to make sure it's more than half doesn't have to be everybody and you have to then manage the people um, or the voices that say look you've done the wrong thing or we didn't agree with that in some way um, and the fifth one I think is um, enjoy it if you're not enjoying it um, you know don't do it <laughs> so I think with any role I mean we we, you know, we have our professional roles, um, we have our jobs. There are an awful lot of people doing jobs that they don't like and they don't yeah. enjoy. And um, I think if it gets to that point where you think, oh, you know, don't want to go to work today, don't want to get out of bed, um, then it's time to sort of rethink what you're doing. Yes. Um, and maybe it's just time for a career change or maybe it's time to go and talk to your, your supervisor, your boss and say, look, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. And I've had staff come and do this with me. Mm. Mm. Uh, I had a um, an older male staff member some years ago who came and said, look, I've been doing this role now for seven or eight years. I absolutely hate it. Oh. Um, <laughs> You're like, oh, no. <laughs> but I'd rather do this. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to let you do that. And he actually yeah. did that. He said, well, I'm going to retire in two years. Anyway, he, he retired in five years from memory. It was a lot longer than the two. Right. He, so he, he did enjoy it. You did enjoy yeah. that role. Um, and I think, you know, if you've got the space, sometimes it doesn't work. But in that case, I, we had a new structure and he could see this role and he, he that was something he really wanted to do. Yeah. So, so I think that, that was a case of someone being brave enough to come and say, you know, it wasn't anything personal. He'd been doing that role well before I joined the university. But to say, look, you know, I am not happy, but I think I yeah. could be happy and I could be more of a contributor if you let me do this. Yeah, yeah. And half the battle is knowing, right? Half the battle is knowing and recognising that you're not having a good time and also going, oh, I think actually that would be more interesting. Mm. That's right. That's right. Yes. I love that. Brilliant tips. Be authentic. Fill the gaps. Build a good team and support network. Uh, make sure someone's got your back. And I think you said about 60%, which I think is, you know, pretty much on the money. And enjoy it because life is too short not to... Uh, Enjoy the work that we do when we spend, you know, nearly a third of our lives there. That's right. Amazing. Any last words you would like to share with the listeners? No, look, I think that's probably a good note to end on. Um, Really, I think, um, you know, I've been really lucky that I've had a whole lot of roles where, you know, you have good days and bad days and you have, you know, bad decisions and bad moments, but I actually love what I do. Yeah. Uh, And I think that I just feel very, very fortunate to be in that position of being able to, to work with people I really respect and and admire and I love what I do. Oh, fantastic. Yes, I think, and that that certainly shows through the work that you do as well, that you are 
very passionate about the work that you do and the organisations that you work for and the impact that that has, uh, not just with your team, but the future leaders of tomorrow as well. Amazing. Thank you so much for uh, your time today. Thank you for sharing your expertise. I'll add the lo uh, the links into the show notes for anyone who's looking to connect with you. LinkedIn's the best place, is it? Yeah, link LinkedIn is the best for me. That's great. LinkedIn's the best for you. Amazing. Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Okay. See you, Ali. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode on the Made For More podcast, please make sure you subscribe to receive future episodes. And of course, five-star reviews are always welcome on the Apple podcast. If you'd like a copy of the show notes or any of the links mentioned today, check out madeformore.com.au forward slash podcast. And of course, if we aren't connected already, you can find me in all the usual places. Ali Nitschke on LinkedIn, Ali.MadeForMore on Facebook and Instagram. I hope you have an awesome week and I'll catch you again soon. Bye-bye.